Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this Divorce Fundamentals presentation. Uh, today's topic is about separation agreements, um, which are real the uh, center of uh, divorce law and um, the conclude oftentimes the concluding uh, uh, event of any divorce. I'm I'm David Friedman. Um, I've been a family law attorney for 18 years. Um, I've been involved in the BBA in many different ways. I'm currently on the council of the BBA, but previously as a family law chair. Um, with me today is Lowe Stark and Pete Jamison, who I'll allow to, them to introduce themselves well. Um, thanks, David. Hi, everyone. I am a partner at Kasner and Edwards. Um, I recently transitioned my practice from Burns and Levinson, but I've been a divorce and family law practitioner for over 10 years now. Um, I'm excited to be joined by Pete and David, and I'll let Pete introduce himself. Good afternoon, Good afternoon everyone. My name is Peter Jamison. Uh, I'm a partner in Hastings Jamison and Lipschutz in North Andover. I've been practicing family law in some form or another for about 15 years now, more than 15 years now. I'm very happy to be with such learned counsel as Attorney Friedman and Attorney Stark. Well, it's a shame. Uh, the, the value of these webinars, um, obviously, we're getting great turnout these days on them, but we miss the in person, uh, um, the benefits of an in person meeting. Um, I'm really excited to be with the two these two people. Um, it's a fun group and um, hopefully we can answer any, any and all questions that people have. The concept of the divorce fundamentals is really to, uh, to appeal to new practitioners or um, people looking into family law for the first time. Um, so it is going to be an overview um, and we're not going to get too much into the details of, an of the agreement. Um, however, if anybody has any specific questions or if we've glossed over something, um, the more questions, the better, and the more interactive we can be. Um, so today, we're, again, we're talking about separation agreements. I had a conversation with a colleague the other day saying that she likes to go to court and that she does, she hates drafting agreements because there's no art to an agreement. And I scoffed. Um, the uh, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of art to this. Um, this is one of those things where the devil is really in the detail. Um, I wouldn't say as much as cases are won and lost, but cases are solidified and maybe future modifications and contempts are won and lost when entering, uh, when negotiating and drafting these agreements. Um, you're drafting these agreements to get, capture what everybody has come to terms with as of today, but you're also doing it uh, with an eye to the future. Um, what, what is likely to happen and how can we kind of uh, combat that now or, or, or respond to that now in a way that's one gonna make people's lives easier or also protecting your client's interests in the future. Um, I very much disagree with the phrase boilerplate um, and we'll talk about some of the early provisions of an agreement, um, but everything in this agreement needs to be negotiated and thought of. Um, you need to uh, reread these. I've read them thousands and thousands of times, but from the perspective each time, and what is my case now, who is my client, and how does this provision help or hurt that client? Um, so starting with it again, to avoid any confusion, um, I refer to them as separation agreements. I've heard a lot of people refer to them as divorce agreements, settlement agreements, or marital separation agreements. They're all the same thing. Pick your uh, favorite name for them. Uh, but when I'm referring to separation agreements and if Peter Lowe referred to them as something else, um, that we're all talking about the same thing. Um, one of the important things and, and something you often have to remind clients is at the end of the day, you know, the agreement's theirs and we can help them come up with it and we can be as creative as you want. The prop of the, with the understanding that ultimately this agreement needs to be approved by a court. 
The court has to make sure that it's free from fraud and coercion and make sure it's fair and reasonable. Um, the court also needs to make findings that the provisions for custody, for support and maintenance and for alimony or for the disposition of marital property um, are, are fair. So ultimately you can write whatever you want, but you need the court to approve it at the end of the day. Um, there are, you know, there's case law about oral agreements and the enforceability of oil, of oral agreements. Um, there's also oftentimes in a negotiation or in a mediation session, people will reach what's called a memorandum of understanding. Pete, do you ever deal with memorandums of understanding in your cases? It seems to me it used to be memorandum of understandings were, were more in vogue a few years ago. I still deal with them, but they were being presented to the court sort of as like a, 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 a sort of a separation agreement at some points that fall apart and people ask the court to uh, approve them. That seems to be going out of style, and I don't see a lot of judges actually approving memorandums of memorandum of understanding. But what I use them for is sort of a baseline to say, okay, this is the structure of what we'd agreed upon. Now I'm going to incorporate that into a much uh, uh, more comprehensive agreement. The case that uh, David was uh, mentioning is Dominic v. Dominic. Um, it's a very, very important case, and it comes into play when you talk about a judge accepting not the full belt suspenders agreement, but sort of the outline of an agreement and really running through what we call the colloquy of the questions that uh, need to be answered in order for a court uh, to typically approve of a separation agreement. Um, and it's really important to look at Dominic and look at the factors contained in there. I won't run through them all, but they're very, very important. They deal with also, you know, whether or not someone had the use of experts, whether uh, they, the experience and ability of counsel was there. Um, and these all come into play whether or not a judge will actually approve terms of a separation agreement or terms of a divorce written down or not written down. So it is very important. And I always say with MOUs, they're, they're helpful, but don't put your trust in them. I, I will add that recently I was before a judge who flat out uh, rejected the notion of accepting a memorandum of understanding, even though, you know, the intent was to try to distill the terms to eventually put into a separation agreement, the judge outright said, nope, sorry, I don't even accept this. If you want to turn it into a stipulation, temporary agreement, that's fine, but that's not coming in through my court. Um, and I, so what we're talking about today are, it, it's a more formal separation agreement. Um, and what we perhaps, which would be best practice, you know, the reality of our lives as family law practitioners are things happen in, in the lobby of a courthouse, and we try to uh, make the best do to get people divorced and moved on with their lives. So, um, but today we're talking about that situation where you've gone back to your office, you have the opportunity to draft a thorough separation agreement and uh, share it with opposing counsel back and forth. Um, so I think the, the way that makes most sense is to kind of go through some of the provisions of a separation agreement one by one. Um, I will kind of do it more or less in the order that I would do it if I were drafting the agreement myself. So um, the general provisions, uh, uh, well, before I even get to general provisions, um, when you're presenting a, a complaint for divorce, you have to present what's called the prima facie case for divorce. Um, it is, you know, names of the parties where they live, um, how long, you know, what is the date of the marriage, date last lived together, um, is there any hope for reconciliation, identification of children, those kind of issues. So um, while you will, in, depending on what judge you're appearing for, have to put that on the record, I often begin every separation agreement with a disclosure um, of 
Sorry, this old. We're fixing it. <laughs> um, and I think that's been fixed. Excuse us. Um, it's the disclosure of all those facts within the first couple of paragraphs of the document itself. Um, this can be really helpful too when you're uh, walking to court and presenting the agreement. All the answers that you need to ask or all the questions and answers are already baked into the document that you're holding in your hand. Um, then you have uh, more general contract provisions is what we would move on to. Um, things about was this agreement voluntarily executed? Um, does, the, does each party have independent counsel? Um, is there any outside uh, agreements beyond what's in this agreement in the, the lack of enforceability of those outside agreements? Um, was there full disclosure? Was there an opportunity for discovery? Um, did people know that they had a right, uh, a, a right to trial? Um, and have they waived that right to trial um, in order to come to an agreement based on these terms? Um, are there waivers of estates, uh, meaning in the future if one of the parties dies? Um, is there general release language? Um, is there uh, language about strict performance, breach, uh, severability of provisions, and even information about the uh, how agreements can be modified within uh, within itself? So that's kind of the beginning um, uh, contract provisions of most separation agreements. Are there any that I've left out that, or any of these that you think deserves more attention than others? I, when you're dealing with uh, the separation, I also love a, a paragraph saying that the financial considerations are sufficient to meet the needs of the parties. And that's a critical statement when you take a look at the issue of alimony, because alimony, unlike child support, is based upon the need of the recipient to receive and the ability of the payor to pay. So later on, this goes to David's point about looking to the future. If one party comes in and says, I want alimony. Well, you have in the agreement baked in there, to borrow David's phrase again, uh, that they agree that the terms of the agreement at that time were sufficient to meet their needs, which is very helpful come modification time on alimony. So Pete's point, you want to make sure that the <clears throat> that these uh, contract provisions, for lack of better words, are very clear that each party has the opportunity to review the other's um, financial statement relative to income, assets, expenses, and liabilities so that they're knowingly entering to entering into this contact, having waived any further discovery and in full understanding of what potentially they could be giving up by entering into the separation agreement. Um, this is critically important and the, the court will go through these um, these provisions and have the parties answer orally as to whether they reviewed the agreement, they understand the terms. So basically all of these contract provisions that are written and signed off on the separation agreement, the court is going to go through line by line also. Now, um, the other, the probably the most important provision of that beginning of the separation agreement is um, what I would call is the merger and survival line. Um, some people call it, it's the effect of the agreement. Um, this is a hugely important uh, function uh, or provision of any agreement where it talks about um, what's going to happen with this agreement in the future. Um, there's a judge, there was a judge in Norfolk County, Judge Fallon, who, who would even put a diagram up so, to make sure that everybody was very uh, understood exactly what these provisions mean. Um, it's also on the day of court, the provision I always read um, over with my client when we're sitting there waiting to be called. In short, and this is an oversimplification, but if, if, if terms of an agreement merge, they remain modifiable. 
Um, essentially, they've merged into the judgment of divorce, which allows the court to come back and make uh, uh, to modify them based upon a change of, uh, uh, um, excuse me, a uh, uh, um, some sort of material change in circumstance or um, if it, or other uh, terms of modifications um, that may apply. Um, if a, a provision survives, it means it survives as an independent contract outside of the judgment, and it's generally non-modifiable. There is an exception. Um, there's a, an old case, Knox v. Remick, that talks about um, countervailing equities, the idea being that survived provisions can sometimes uh, be changed, but only in the most uh, severe situations. Um, any comments on the emergent survival language? So what I always did, and this is just me, is that I prefer to draft the agreements because it comes up, you reach an agreement, someone says, well, who's drafting it? And I say, well, I will. And your clients may say, well, I don't want to pay you to draft it. And I say, it's better that I draft it because I know the angles. You have been doing this for a very long time. Um, when I draft it, I have in the front section of, of my agreement, I know exactly what paragraph it is. It's the merger and survival contained paragraph 15. I always highlight it. So when I go over and highlight on Word, when I go over that with my client, I make sure every single time that I review a separation agreement, I don't care if I'm representing someone that knows the law in and out, another lawyer, or if it's someone that, that has no acumen in the law whatsoever. I walk through that very, very clearly because that's the one thing that spells out the rights all the way to the future. And um, with Knox, you're looking at, uh, you know, that, that the countervailing equities argument is like the 0.01% of cases. It's very, very, very unlikely that you could ever uh, obtain a modification of a surviving term. So it's very, very important. That's why I always review with my clients in depth. I've had one uh, countervailing equity case in 18 years. Yeah. So, um, you know, it is, Peter's correct. It, it is the, uh, by far, uh, not the norm that those cases come up. Yeah. Um, I'd also make sure to flag this with specificity with the court. This is something that when preparing for the oral argument and presentation of the, the term, summarizing it for the court, I flag that's the first thing that I mention. I let the judge know precisely what page this language is in the agreement and make sure to put orally on the record as to what the um, terms provide. So I, I would say in, in practice, most lawyers that I have cases with draft their agreements with a uh, the agreement itself, and then they attach to it various exhibits on, uh, on the several topics we're about to discuss. Um, others can make it one whole document within itself, but I'm going to talk about it today as if these are separate exhibits. Um, the first exhibit that um, requires a lot of consideration is the parenting plan. Um, parenting plans usually have breakdown between the topics of legal custody um, and then um, more physical custody or what we now call parenting plans. I don't hear the word physical custody as much, um, but the idea of parenting plans, you know, who gets the children when, um, and then getting into even more detailed issues about holidays, vacations, um, you know, this is one um, that I often talk to clients about when, you know, there's law and then there's facts. And this this is very dear to uh, and important to the client themselves, where, you know, we can go and bang our heads against the wall, but this is the schedule that they're going to follow and they're going to live by. Um, so one that I get a, a tremendous amount of client feedback and input on so they can come up with a plan that works for them. 
Um, other provisions that sometimes you see uh, within these uh, within this exhibit um, may be a right of first refusal. Um, that is, if one parent's unable to exercise their parenting time, um, do they have an obligation to reach out to the other parent and essentially uh, offer them the opportunity uh, to have the children? What do you think about that, uh, Love? Um, so it really depends, like you were saying, David, um, relative to the parties and their children and how, you know, how they are going to work with the, their co-parent and to actually practically facilitate that. Um, the courts don't typically want to see an instance where if one party is unavailable for two hours that they have to then load up the children, send them to the other side. Um, and so they, they generally like to see six to eight hours overnights, even something where there's a substantive amount of time where one parent is unavailable to take care of um, the children. And so this is something where, you know, even if you say, no, I always, you know, your, your client always wants the children, for example, um, I tend to push back and say, okay, but is there a, a, a your grandparent would want to spend time with these children rather than sending them back and forth. Um, I just put it on the client to say, all right, well, this is going to be reciprocal and how is it going to affect you? And one of the things that I always battle with is how detailed do I get when I approach a parenting plan? A lot of times there's two people where if you start introducing details, um, you know, that pushes them when you get too detailed, that pushes them back against the wall and they're not going to engage meaningfully. Then there's people that I absolutely know. Good fences make good neighbors and everyone needs a schedule. Um, I had a, a case a few years ago uh, where uh, the other party brought up to me as I was negotiating the agreement. They said, all right, I got one more change to the parenting plan. My client wants international talk like a pirate day. And I laughed about it and I still laugh about it. But then as I've gone over in the years, I go, you know what? That's actually a really good thing because that was a big thing between that party and that child. And that attorney was listening to their, uh, their, their client talk about what's important to them. And we tailored the agreement to that effect. And that's really good. And that's what you, we should be doing. Maybe it's a discretionary issue about whether you want to go that detailed. You got to think of things like how old are the kids? Does this parenting plan make sense? And really think about these two people that you're getting divorced. What is good for them and what does your client want? I will add um, also that oftentimes some clients say, okay, nope, we're actually good. We're, not, we're everything's fine. We don't really need to get into all the details. And, you know, to what we were speaking about earlier, just wanting to be able to foresee what could happen, any potential um, pitfalls in the future. I often say, okay, great. We can put in some nice holistic, amicable language would say, all right, in the event of an issue, the default is X with specific dates uh, or days of the week and times, because in the absence of that, if something does go awry, then their only remedy is to contact attorneys or go to court. So mm -hmm. you want to try to avoid that. The example that I give is that it's like the rules to Monopoly. You play Monopoly and something happens. People think they know the rules, but then something occurs and they go, oh, we got to check the rules. That's what I hope for. I hope a separation agreement is something that people don't have to look back on. They can forge their own path, step them out in the world. But if they need to, they can look back and say, this is what we're supposed to do with Easter. This is what we're supposed to do on Thanksgiving. What time of the year is international? Uh, it didn't, didn't get that far. Did it, it, didn't, it didn't affect uh, any of the major holidays. I want to say... I want to say it was like a March. Yeah, it's a gift, gift, is it a gift giving holiday? I just have, well, I mean, right. you know, the bucket uh, of rum, maybe. Uh, but other, other provisions that can go within this exhibit, um, just to kind of check the box on, are, um, you know, making sure each party um, or, or does, 
make sure they do or don't have access to educational and medical records of the children, um, information about uh, each party's ability uh, to take a child outside of Massachusetts or even travel internationally and perhaps restrictions on that. Um, one of them, and, and this could actually go off one of the questions we just have, is radius restrictions. Um, actually, let me put two that kind of dovetail into the question we have. The question is, can one place limits on where an ex-spouse can live? Um, so some provisions have radius restrictions. I've never seen one um, imposed by a court outside of an agreement, but essentially um, something saying that the custodial parent, the par parent or uh, the parent who has the child more often than not, can't move within without outside of 5, 10, 15, 20 miles um, from where they currently live is that would disturb the parenting plan. The other issue um, that kind of goes into this is this concept of removal, which is 208 section 30, um, that talks about um, when a parent can move out of state with a child. Um, that's really a course within itself. Um, they're very difficult, um, most often tried cases. Um, and the standard uh, can change depending on your, uh, the amount of uh, parenting time you have with your children. Um, so any other uh, responses to those two issues? I would say that the, it, it gets very difficult. We say a parent can't move. We put language in the agreement says you can't move more than a set distance uh, because what do you define as the bird, as the crow flies, Google Maps, um, did you use MapQuest? You still use MapQuest data. Yeah. Um, so what do you do there? Well, what I try to do is I name towns where I say, all right, the parties agree that they live in Cambridge um, and that if either party moves to, say, Somerville, Malden, Medford, adjacent towns, that's not a change in circumstances. But if you decide to move outside of those towns, then you got to go back to court and uh, talk about a modification. Or, as David, I'm sure, will talk about, maybe you meet with a neutral, like a parent coordinator or a mediator. That's what I typically do. I've had it, uh, one agreement going from a judge and she struck that completely um, when I said, uh, you know, neither party may move. That was an early rookie mistake, so it's not gonna happen. These are also instances where, you know, you wanna have a conversation with, the, with your client about the effect on the children, right? Because uh, there's a question of whether or not an hour and a half, two hours in a car is reasonable in their best interests and the like, and then, there's the concept that I've seen a couple of times now of an in-state removal where because as parties are still moving within Massachusetts or one party still moving, moving within Massachusetts, the removal standard does apply because again of the distance um, and the impact ultimately on the children. Absolutely. Um, other issues for the parenting plan uh, exhibit, maybe religious issues. Um, you know, the parties intend to raise a child Catholic or Jewish or what have you, if those are significant issues, um, they can be addressed in these paragraphs in, in this exhibit. Um, Non-disparagement language has uh, become a talking point. Um, there was a case called Shack versus Shack um, that said that the court didn't have the ability to limit the First Amendment rights of people by imposing non-disparagement uh, clauses. But that does not mean that the parties can't agree to a non-disparagement clause, essentially limiting their rights to talk badly about the other in front of the children or even to other people. Um, and as Pete alluded to, comment on that? Yeah. And not on that specifically, but um, I will say this is again, another instance where you want to look to your client and figure out what's important to them. I've, I've had to draft in provisions about 
hair and haircuts and the like, and that's sometimes a big ticket item or Halloween and like details about who's trick-or-treating when it, you know, obviously that's impacting smaller children, but those are real issues or, or about iPad use or electronics, or you really just have to have a conversation about whether you're going into too much minutia um, or this is something that's going to be a big ticket item and you want to avoid a future fight. Um, so yeah, I think that's knowing your clients and knowing the situation, because at the end of the day, these people are going to have to co-parent together and make decisions together. Um, but some people, and you'll know by the, you'll know immediately, uh, may lack the ability to do that or struggle to do that. So, um, you know, it's finding the details of your case and determining what's necessary and what's in everybody's best interest. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, I was I, some things uh, when I draft an agreement, I, I sadly I have to think of it in terms of also maybe a contempt later on, meaning that is, will this be held enforceable? If someone violates this term, what's the repercussions? And, and uh, unfortunately, when we get to things like a disparagement clause, that's not super enforceable later on from the perspective of contempt. Whereas when we get into child support, those will be very, uh, very much enforceable and easily provable. So just keep that in mind that when you go through here, when we put in things like a non-disparagement, yeah, that might make everyone feel really good. But the question is, would it be enforced and how do you prove a violation later on? Um, while Lo and Pete are cold-blooded uh, litigators, um, I like to put a mediation provision in sometimes in these, in these kind of paragraphs or even reference. <laughs> we both do. Someone's on the take for the United American Mediation Society, <laughs> I think. Yep. Um, so uh, um, parent coordinator language um, it, it is very popular and you see that from time to time, essentially a third party neutral who comes in and uh, helps the parties resolve issues to the extent that they're unable to resolve an issue. Um, oftentimes that parent coordinator is given the ability to make a determination um, that then could be brought back to court if either party doesn't agree with it. Um, also, mediation provisions are really popular, and I think um, particularly on parenting issues, um, where these are issues that sometimes the court does not have all the tools to deal with this, and it's, it's way, way better to resolve uh, before a third party neutral. Um, I'm just looking at a question right now, which will come up later in, um, probably not within too much detail, but later in the uh, conversation. Um, let's move on to another exhibit, child support. This is obviously a very big one in only in cases involving children. Um, the details that need, you know, you want to provide a lot of details when drafting these provisions about, of course, the amount of support that's going to be paid, the duration of when it's going to be uh, paid, you know, is it monthly, is it, is it weekly, um, and the method of payment even, you know, is it by check, is it direct deposit, is it by wage assignment, is it um, automatic deposit into another person's account, Venmo, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever the people find is the best way to do it. Um, in these provisions, uh, you know, you often identify that you follow the, the child support guidelines, Massachusetts child support guidelines in arriving at a figure. However, if you've deviated from the guidelines, I think it's very helpful to include in the language what the deviation was and why you deviated. Um, the idea, again, is going back to the point I made earlier, one that Pete kind of referenced recently is that this may be back in front of a court. So it is helpful to have the intent of why the parties arrived at this number when they did. 
And I think it's actually required in the child support guidelines that you have to state the reason, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I think you have to you have to submit findings of yes. deviation, but it doesn't have to be within the agreement itself. Um, there's also um, emancipation language. Um, some people um, will spell out all the terms of when a child becomes emancipated. Um, other people like to reference the statute itself um, in 208 section 28. Um, this issue came up recently in the Kavanaugh case, which we will talk about a few times today, but Pete, you want it, it, it appears that the, the SJC and Kavanaugh um, in both the initial decision and the amended decision, both kind of put their blessing more towards uh, when you talk about emancipation, just to refer to the statute. There's a lot of different versions that you'll see pop up and maybe uh, people's uh, standard draft separation agreement. Um, and some of them might be more on point than others. Um, the SJC said, you know what, it might be smarter just to refer to the statute. And that's the way that uh, they sort of handled that in Kavanaugh. And so I've been doing that ever since uh, the decision came out. Um, as an as a, uh, option or a alternative, excuse me, to uh, child support, um, some people use unallocated support. Um, this concept of something not being child support, not being alimony, but being something else altogether. Um, in a recent case called Duval v. Duval, um, th this issue was addressed in some detail about if you're going to call something unallocated support, you have the ability to do that, but be sure you explain what it is. Um, you know, so it's not left up to interpretation uh, at a later date. Um, also, just within child support provisions, I often include um, details about the payment of extracurricular expenses above and beyond child support and defining what those expenses are um, and you know the re reimbursement mechanisms for the payment of those expenses. And this again goes, I think you want to think about tailoring it not only to the parties, but to the kids. Um, if you have, God forbid, a kid in hockey, and I mean that because it's so expensive, uh, look at the types of expenses that child is occurring. You're going to have to deal with pads, you're going to deal with ice time. Um, if they, if your kids, if the kids involved in the case have a history of a certain activity, make sure you, you, it's a good idea to plug that into the agreement. Or if they're relatively young and we don't know what direction they're going to go into, um, you know, you might want to leave that open to discussion and maybe as a fallback, a neutral to say, all right, well, you know, Johnny maybe wants to go horseback riding or he also wants to do baseball. Well, maybe they can't do both. And maybe it's a good idea to sit down and talk to someone about what's the best approach there. There is a question right now that it says, can one party force the other parent to pay for private school? Um, you know, again, this, this, this is more about the drafting of agreements, but this is the provision where you would put in any agreement that the parties have to pay for school. Um, the short answer to that is yes, the court can, um, but oftentimes they'll look at what was happening prior to the parties getting divorced, if the children were in private school the whole time, but you know, the parties obviously can agree to do it no matter what. And we often have provisions and you spell out just like, you know, we'll get to the college section later, but what, what does tuition mean or what payments are we paying um, and making sure each party has a say in where the child goes. Um, so those do come up frequently and something you definitely would want to include in the agreement. Moving on to the next exhibit is one of alimony. Um, obviously another really big um, agreement, uh, a really big exhibit uh, in term. 
Um, you know, on, on one hand, you can have waivers of alimony in some cases. Some judges will not allow them in longer term uh, marriages. But if you're waiving alimony, it's spelling out what that waiver means. Is it a waiver of just uh, past and present alimony or does it include the waiver of future alimony as well? Um, and in there, you, um, I often include uh, details saying that each party uh, currently has the ability to support themselves, that we've considered all the factors under Section 53, and uh, making sure that the, under, that the parties fully understand what this waiver means. Um, if it's a waiver of future alimony, the idea that neither can come back and seek alimony from the other in the future. Um, if there is an alimony component in, in the case, um, the first thing you'd want to do is identify the type of alimony. Um, the alimony statute provides that you can have general uh, rehabilitative reimbursement and transitional alimony. Um, each of, again, this is another course altogether, the issue of alimony, um, but more often than not, I, I see general term alimony and general term alimony, as it, as it suggests, uh, goes on for a period of time. Um, and so that's something you obviously need the details in. How much is it? How long is it going to last? When is it going to be paid? And when ultimately will it terminate? The terminating factors um, can be very, uh, are, are extraordinarily important to include in here. And how it could terminate. Right, exactly. but you also might want to get creative as well because uh, possibly you may be representing the alimony payor. One of the terms by under the statute that general term alimony can terminate is cohabitation. Perhaps there is someone on the horizon or perhaps someone already present that your client may uh, believe uh, the, if they're the, the payor, that the other party may be cohabitating with or may eventually cohabitate. Well, if you plug that into the agreement, that person will be on absolute notice that cohabitation would be uh, would give rise to part of their income going away. So maybe, and this isn't a practice tip, but it's an idea, is that maybe you want to say, or any other term of termination or reason for termination contained within the statute. That way you've identified that it's a possibility they're represented, hopefully, by learned counsel. And then later on, if that cohabitation does occur, you have an in right there. And you can bring it to the court, or perhaps uh, you rely upon the statute as it is. Um, terminating grounds typically are, by statute, are the death of, death of either party. Um, it's uh, the cohabitation can be um, grounds for termination, suspension, um, or reduction. The, um, there's also the remarriage of a spouse. And then lastly, there's, no, there's durational limits based upon the length of marriage. And then lastly, there's retirement. And that's not retirement as you may think of it. It's as it's defined um, by the statute itself, um, which depends on what year you're born, but oftentimes hovers around the age of 67. Any other things before we move outside of alimony? Okay. Um, health insurance and the payment of uninsured medical expenses. Um, so in this provision, you want to identify who, which of the parties will be maintaining health insurance for themselves and potentially for the other person, as well as which party is going to be maintaining health insurance. And when I say health insurance, I'm sorry, I, I can also mean health insurance, uh, dental insurance, or vision insurance, um, or any other insurance that the parties want to carry. Um, outside of life insurance, which we'll talk about later. But the, um, 
the idea is that you're identifying who's paying for it and how and how long they have to maintain it for. Um, if they're providing for the children, is it through emancipation? And a really important function of this is what is this insurance? Is does the party have the obligation to maintain any insurance? Does it need to be reasonably comparable insurance to the insurance that they have right now? And does it need to be that insurance that's provided through their employer and subsidized to their employer, perhaps? Um, you know, we've had cases without that, or I personally had cases without that level of detail um, where the person has lost their job and there's a, there's a very clear reading that this person needs to go out and obtain uh, medical insurance for the family, even at a high price. Um, there's also the, the idea of out-of-pocket expenses, so those co-pays or perhaps something's not covered by under your insurance. How are those expenses paid or shared or are they allocated, are they attributed to one person has to pay them? And again, like the extracurricular idea, extracurricular expenses idea that we were talking about earlier, what is the reimbursement mechanism for uh, these payments? Just to tack on to David's, I mean, normally what I see is that the parties will split the uninsured medical expenses for their children. But what you also want to do when you get to the drafting is be expansive on that because you could deal with orthodontia, you could deal with braces, you could deal with therapy. Um, orthodontia and braces, I think, are the same. Lo, she was going to correct me. No, no. Um, but you, you, you could deal with all these things that may not be between firmly between uh, uh, health and dental. You just want to maybe expand on that because that could save some trouble later on if one party uh, says, well, orthodontia is not really dental. It is, but it would save you a little bit of trouble there. And I think, just, I think retainers are orthodontists. Yeah. I was fine with the, you know. It's in there. I'm just, it's, it's, it's a category. And um, just, just to touch upon um, the health insurance generally, you know, you need to make sure that parties can continue to remain covered um, post-divorce, um, if that's something that's agreed upon, because some of um, some of the employers um, are self-insured and are unable to carry ex-spouses post-divorce. So after that NISI period, some of those some of those parties might get kicked off. So that's something that you'll need to determine um, when putting into these, uh, you know, negotiating the terms of these provisions as well. Really, really good point. Um, the next exhibit is college expenses. Um, believe it or not the court has the ability to make you have to pay for college. So you don't have that op you don't have that obligation when you are a married intact family, but when you get divorced, all of a sudden the court can make you have to pay for your child's um, educational costs. The way the statute is written is um, absent findings, the court can't make you pay any more than 50% of the in-state tuition for UMass Amherst. Um, so that is oftentimes, you know, we draft these agreements perhaps when, the, when a child is 10, 12 years old and we have no idea what their future is going to be like. So the first thing you want to do is talk about what, how are you going to decide where the child goes to school? Um, it's going to be a joint decision. Um, it's going to be in consideration of the ch child's best interests, their aptitude, um, their interests. Um, then we also want to define what college expense really means. Does it mean tuition room and board? Does it mean off-campus housing? Does it mean uh, computers and printers and internet access and food and travel to and from uh, uh, where they grew up? You know, there's not an answer to this. Um, this. This is the definition that you need to negotiate and think about when uh, entering into these kind of agreements. 
Yeah. And the way I think of it is that, is that the further you are removed from college, if you're dealing with a seven-year-old, um, you, you probably don't want to lay down hard and fast rules because who knows what's going to happen in the next 10 years before they start looking at popular. That's a different story than a 16 or a 17-year-old as you're closer in age to college and you maybe have more of the pieces of the puzzle in there. And I also think that's a good idea to put in language um, that when you're reviewing college or you're looking at it, if, if it's one of those, okay, we're gonna address this at a later time, college is very expensive. And if you're dealing with a child that say is gonna be going to Stanford or across the country or out of state, and they're gonna be living there for most of the year and a parent's gonna be paying potentially $15,000 a year or maybe even more, isn't that parent really paying for their living expenses? And isn't that really child support in a sense? So I usually build in language that doesn't mean that child support will terminate, but you maybe should review child support at the time that you talk about college because there's a give and take there. Um, so once you decided, you know, how do you determine where, how the, the child's going to college and you've identified what college expenses are, you do obviously want to be very clear about who's paying for college. Um, we talked about the cap with the UMass Amherst, um, with 50% of UMass Amherst, that can be included, but depending on who your clients are, they may have the ability to pay greater than that, and that may, may not be a concern. They may have a, a, an inability to pay that much, and you may want to set a lower cap than even that. Um, the, um, you also want to talk about the opportunity for a, a party to have, um, to, of a child to be able to get financial aid, grants, scholarships, and how those are applied. Oftentimes, they're applied in the first instance before anybody has an obligation to pay. There's also, if the parties have already um, set up a 529 account, you know, how is that going to be used and who's going to get the benefit of that? Because that those funds are obviously going to be used as well towards the payment of the child's uh, education. I will say that there is not a fog machine in this office right now. We're just catching the beautiful dusk sunlight and that's what's affecting making it is so cloudy looking in this office. I'm trying to sort it. Yeah, it looks forward, we're, we're good. Okay. So there's currently a question up and maybe while we're figuring out yeah. the lighting, we can answer it. It says, can an agreement explain who will purchase cars for the children? So an agreement can really say anything you want it to say. Um, you know, an obligation to purchase a car for a child is not likely going to be imposed by any court and make you do it. But to the extent that you've agreed that somebody is going to uh, buy the car, the child a car, perhaps when he or she is 16 years old, um, that provision can be in there and you can spell it out and it would be enforceable. So, um, you know, those are that kind of high, that question kind of highlights it's the party's agreement. It can be in many ways as creative as they want it to be, provided at the end of the day, the court approves it. Um, if no one has anything else on the topic of college education, um, I should say before I move on, um, post postgraduate education, um, usually, you know, that will happen after a child um, is outside the scope of the emancipation statute. Um, I've seen people put in agreements that has been allowed. I would generally uh, be very cautious about that because the court may lack the ability to enforce an agreement uh, for children that are no longer um, either or outside of emancipation, outside of the emancipation statute. You could also have a child very similar to Doogie Hauser, MD, um, in which case you want to spell that out because Doogie Hauser, I think, graduated from medical school at 12? The young age. Well, yeah, it's firmly documented Doogie Hauser, Case versus Hauser, B. Hauser, B. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure he was on scholarship. Yeah. Um, the uh, security, like uh, uh, the next exhibit, I sometimes call security, sometimes I just call it life insurance. Um, it talks about the party's obligation to maintain life insurance for either the benefit of the other party or for the children or for some other source altogether. Um, I call it security because these the, the life insurance is in place oftentimes to secure a party's obligation to provide child support to the other um, for the benefit of the children, the obligation to uh, secure alimony payments, or if there's a future lump sum payment to be made, for example, um, one party is keeping a family business but doesn't have the liquidity to uh, pay out whatever the other spouse's equitable interest in, that could be a structured payment over time. But you may want to secure that with life insurance if the person dies in the meantime, that makes sure your client is able to uh, receive those funds. Um, in drafting this, um, you obviously identify the amounts of the death benefit, how long the person has the obligation to maintain uh, the life insurance, um, and who the life insurance will be for the benefit of. Um, is, it, is it going straight to the other, uh, the other party with the idea that it's in the best interest of the children or to be used for the children? Um, you wanna be very careful and avoid um, leaving it for the benefit directly of the children who may be minors, which is gonna leave you, have you going into court for um, conservatorship issues and all kinds of confusing things when the children are under 18 years old. Um, it could, that could be, the funds could go into a trust and you could spell out the details of a trust. Um, and um, oftentimes we draft provisions, if somebody has a million dollar life insurance policy for the benefit of the children, um, but and the children are due to emancipate in 10 years, every year perhaps that they have the ability to reduce their obligation for life insurance, let's say by a hundred thousand um, dollars. So, you know, those provisions are very common. Um, and uh, something that, again, I guess what we're doing here is issue spotting and something you should think about and to make sure uh, your client knows about it and if it fits your client's needs. Also, we put in provisions, um, either a creditor's claim, what to address the idea that a party has failed to maintain the life insurance they're obligated to, they've now passed away. How do you make sure that uh, you can still secure those monies? So it's either you could put in language about a creditor's claim against the estate, um, you can also put in provisions that requires uh, of once a year or a duration that everybody agrees that that party who's maintaining the life insurance has to provide documentation to the other that the life insurance is one in place and two is um, the schedule, the beneficiaries who it's supposed to be. A question I often get is, you know, how do I determine the amount that should be appropriate for the death benefit? And I tend to track precisely what the underlying obligations are for the separation agreement. So if there is a child support obligation, you want to consider the age of the child or children up to the date of emancipation, consider what amount the obligation is, and really do math, add in what college um, college uh, obligations are per the terms of the agreement also. And to um, David's point, you, I often do want to put in a periodic reductions because you don't want an ex-spouse to essentially get a windfall in the event of one's untimely passing. Um, one of the things we all, I, I talk to clients about is it's not just the uh, non-custodial parent, let's call them, who has an obligation to secure child support. The custodial parent also has an obligation to maintain life insurance because if that person passes away, 
there's a tremendous amount of expense that's needed to fill the void of that person's debt. Um, so it's, you know, the argument is I'm not paying child support. I don't have to have life insurance. Well, if you pass away, there's going to be a huge financial demand on the, on the, on the surviving parent. Okay. And the other thing is, is that life insurance covers payment in the event of death. But what if someone just doesn't pay? Well, for the most part, in most of my cases, um, a judge will say, well, a contempt is your, is your remedy there. But if you have a long-term payout of a, structured buyout of a business, for example, or a critical asset, which someone just stops paying. Um, there's a case, Pare versus Pare, 409 Mass 292, which says that uh, the court can utilize uh, assets as security. In that, in that case, it was real estate against an ongoing child support obligation. That's not in every case, but it is there. Say, for instance, if you have a, an out-of-state payor. Um, really good question up. What if one party can only get a small amount of life insurance? Or let's even answer the, let's even ask the question, what if a party can get no life insurance at all? Um, there, I've, I've uh, in cases, have made requirements uh, to secure other assets, um, to uh, inform, to make the party maintain a, um, an estate or, or, or uh, trust or wills that somehow confirms upon their death that all these assets will somehow pass to uh, the surviving uh, ex-spouse. Um, so if essentially you're looking for other assets, that happens sometimes when, uh, you know, if a party has long-term illness and they're, they're uninsurable, you know, it's finding different ways to secure that obligation. If the person has no assets and no life insurance, then it's a much more difficult situation. Um, another question, just a one that we want to address is I, I don't understand why um, we don't have an obligation to maintain disability insurance because it's more often more likely to, that somebody will be injured and unable to work than it is perhaps if they're, they're going to die young. Um, but that's not something I see in agreements very frequently. Um, tax issues would be the next exhibit. So we're identifying um, what's going to happen in the year of the party's divorce. On Are the parties going to file jointly? Are they going to file uh, uh, um, married filing separately, um, then you get into questions about um, who's going to be able to claim um, certain deductions associated with real estate, certain deductions and credits associated with uh, claiming the children. Um, all those things are spelled out in detail within, within a well-drafted separation agreement. We're also going to talk about if they are filing jointly in the present year, what happens to any refund or deficit that may be owed to the IRS or, or the mass DOR and who's paying those amount and how's it going to be allocated. Um, you may also uh, talk about, forgive me, I lost my step. Oh, who's going to be paying for um, the returns to be prepared? Um, is, that, is that an expense that's also going to be shared? Um, these provisions also talk about indemnification language, essentially for any past tax returns. What's going to happen if if the IRS comes knocking and says, five years ago, you underpaid this, how are those expenses gonna be paid? And also uh, sometimes uh, attestations from people saying that I, I hereby acknowledge that I paid all the taxes I'm supposed to be paying and in giving the other client that sort of protection. Um, any other things that you, you guys would like to insert in here? No, thank you. Um, division of assets. So I would say, obviously these tend to be this and the parenting plans tend to be the longest parts of the agreement in, in my practice. And it's it's going over you know, all assets in which the parties have an interest whatsoever in determining what happens with those assets. 
Um, so I'm going to go over a list of them. Um, hold on, before we go, what if IRS goes after ex-spouse and you for action in the past? Um, so all I can say, uh, let me read it more clearly, I'm sorry. What if the IRS goes after an ex-spouse and you for an action in the past? Um, you're going, I can talk about the separation agreements role in here. We cannot enter into contracts that overcomes the authority of the IRS. The IRS doesn't care what we put in this agreement. They can still come after both parties if they have the ability to come after both parties. I, it's not an area of my area of my practice, um, but I know that saying, "Hey, this person is responsible for any any debt owed for the IRS," and just looking here, and you can't come after me, IRS. The IRS doesn't care. They're going to come after the people. Uh, they're going to get their money, and then it'll be between the spouses to um, argue about what, you know, can they reimburse the monies from the other spouse? So David's 100% correct. The IRS is going to take their money first. Uh, you hope that in your agreement that you have language in there that meant that David mentioned about indemnification and each party saying that they paid um, uh, what they were supposed to. And this is, of course, this is a little bit easier if you represent the W-2 earner or a W-2 earner as opposed to someone that pays estimated taxes. Uh, that's where I see a lot of difficulty. All right. So... Division of assets. We're talking here about real estate. Who's getting the home? Who's getting the vacation home? Who's paying the expenses on the home? Is the home going to be sold? Is the home going to be retained by one party? And if it's being retained by the party, is that person going to buy out the other one's interest? And if they're buying out the other person's interest, when is that going to be made? And are they going and are they going to have to remove the other one from liability under a, a present existing mortgage? Um, and do they have the ability to do that? So. You know, there's there's a litany of questions that you have to ask yourself, um, and if it's not as simple as you know, Pete keeps the house, and and you it's it's going down to every little detail of what needs to be done, in addition to just transferring a deed, um, including if it's going to be sold, how do you uh, select a broker? Um, and are you going to use a broker? And who's going to who's going to clean the house for um, a uh, for a showing of the house? You know, there's just a million different issues that come up that you need to be very careful and thoughtful when drafting a provision as to the transferring or sale of real estate. Um, the next topic would the next area of personal property would be a tangible, what I call tangible personal property: pots, pans, um, artwork, couches. Um, these are ones where I'm very, very careful as a practitioner to not get too involved in unless the asset is of significant value. Um, you know, a famous painting that's on loan to a museum or, um, you know, something of that, uh, of that type would be worth really getting down into. But otherwise, even the, the nicest homes and cases I've dealt with, um, I, I really encourage the parties to work out a division of those, those personal assets. These tend to be extremely emotional issues. They seem to be the issues that people care most about because of its very tangible nature that I want, you know, the photos of the kids or, or whatever it is, all of these issues. So what I like to do if the part in the first instance, I my agreements typically uh, required the parties to work it out. And then I come up with a system of what happens if they don't. And the system could be as simple as, you know, like a, like a lottery where one person goes first and, I, and they determine who's going first by the flipping of a coin. 
But on, on the cases where there may be more, more significant assets and more discussion, you can even put in provisions that, to the extent the parties don't agree, that there's an appointment of an arbitrator, someone like Lowe, who would come in and, and if you can't decide, Lowe's going to decide. So, um, you know, I, that's, I try not to put too much time in my personal practice of that, but for the drafting of this, I want to make it very clear so people um, can work it out on their own. Um, that said, you know, if there's family heirlooms or something, um, for example, somebody wants to keep the, the grandfather clock, you know, you'd want to identify that husband or wife shall keep the grandfather clock and that should be excluded from all the other assets that are going to be divided. Um, vehicles, um, they are, you know, removing people's name from, a, from the car title if the other person is going to keep it, um, who's going to maintain the expenses in the future, um, what's going to happen with the insurance, those are the kind of issues you want to consider there. Um, bank accounts, uh, relatively straightforward. Who's going to be maintaining the, the bank accounts to the extent that they're joint? Um, are they get, what, what is the other the party who's retaining it? Their obligation to remove the other name from, from the account or to close the account. Um, I also like to put in provisions that until the accounts are divided, that there'll be no further withdrawals from those accounts. So when you got your client, you fought and fought and fought and got your client this account with $100,000, when they take possession of it, there's, you know, $55.75. Um, you know, you, would, you have a very good clause in here that allows you to go back in and try to recover those monies. Um, retirement accounts, pensions, uh, very similar. Um, in identifying who keeps it, but there is a little more nuance in these or a lot more nuance. Um, one of the things that you do want to make sure is that if you're dividing these accounts, you're dividing them after the date of divorce, plus or minus any increase or decrease in investment values to the date of transfer, but excluding perhaps contributions after the date of the agreement. Um, you, that's extremely important and, and it's really something that attorneys can get, get caught on where you've agreed that for some sort of equalization of retirement accounts, but when the time comes, the market has affected the account such that it's no longer equals. Um, in the dividing of some of these accounts, um, for example, 401ks or pensions, you, you may need what's called a qualified uh, domestic relation order in order to divide these accounts or, or what we'll call quadros. So you'd want to identify all the detail of the quadro, such as um, who's drafting it, who's paying for it to be drafted, and, um, and um, you know, each party's participation in that process. And keep in mind that divisions subject to a divorce are supposed to be a non-taxable event. When you deal with retirement accounts, you don't want someone to try to divide their own retirement account without protections in the agreement, because if they try to divide, say, an IRA, and it's not done in the right way, they could easily be taxed on that by the IRS. So what I always do, especially when dealing with a pension, is I reach out, there's many, many, there's, there's many um, uh, uh, pension attorneys that specifically deal with this type of thing, where they look at the language specifically for this company or for this employer or for, say, Fidelity or TIA, CREF, and know exactly the type of language that you should put in there. It's worth a phone call because, remember, property division in all likelihood is surviving and you won't be able to modify it again. So do the work before you give it to the judge and get a judgment. Um, dividing of investment accounts and securities, um, again, who's going to retain or which investment accounts. And if there's going to be a division, one of uh, Pete's hot tips is that, um, that these can be transferred in kind. Essentially, the idea that if you have two, apples, two stocks of Apple, each person gets the same stock. Um, and you also want to be 
conscious of, of uh, embedded tax treatment, if some of these are subject to um, you know, embedded capital gains, you want to make sure you, if you are equalizing or not equalizing, that that's at least covered and, and considered in, in, in a thoughtful way. Um, division of business interests. Um, somebody's keeping a business. Um, you want to identify that. And for me, these provisions are relatively simple. But what I what I spend more time is just making sure the party who's not retaining the business is fully protected from any liability associated with business. Um, trust interests, future inheritance, um, intellectual property. Um, none. All of these are different things that need to be on your mind um, in making sure you've identified and, and divide them. Um, equity compensation, and what I mean by that are perhaps our uh, restricted stock units or stock options. These are really complex areas of family law um, and how you divide those. Um, I would encourage everybody to look at the Vacanti case and the Ludwig case. That kind of gives you an idea how they can be divided. Um, again, this is one of those things that's really a topic for uh, for entire CLE. Um, in addition to um, assets, there's also, of course, liabilities. It's who's paying credit card debts, uh, student loans. Um, what if somebody's in the middle of litigation and it looks like they're going to have to pay somebody out um, who's suing them? You know, it's identifying these liabilities and making sure that they're allocated to the right person and negotiated. Again, all this can be under an alternative dispute resolution to the extent that the parties can't um, effectuate these divisions. Um, so something just to kind of keep in mind. Oftentimes also people put in bankruptcy provisions, which can be really important if a party goes through bankruptcy um, to identify what would happen and make sure that the intent of the agreement is still fulfilled. Um, that's really the outline of, a, um, of any se separation agreement. Um, with that said, there's 100,000 things that I didn't talk about um, because every case is unique. Every case has uh, unique facts, and it's really identifying um, all your party's income, assets, liabilities, and their interests with their children, um, and making sure that you've addressed not only all the facts that are required, but even those facts that are going to really uh, make you stand out as the good advocate you are for your for your client. And I know that if you've done this for a while or you've experienced, by the time you get to a separation, you're, maybe you're really, really tired and maybe you're at court and you're working on this and maybe um, you just want to get the case done. Well, I'll tell you that it really is worth the extra effort to really come up with a good agreement, a comprehensive agreement to go that extra mile, put in that extra detail, because that might save you and your clients a lot of trouble later on down the road because you thought of it. We're, we're low on time, but um, I did want low. Sorry, low on low. Uh -huh. uh, it wasn't, <laughs> it's a good talk show. Low on low. Um, like, you're going to court with the separation agreement. Okay. Any tips for um, what you would do to prepare for that? Sure. So as I noted at the outset, you'd want to flag for the judge the merger and survival clauses um, because that 
determines and lets the, or dictates rather, lets the judge know what provisions can be modified potentially in the future with a, a material change in circumstance. And what I tend to do, and I prepare this beforehand, is I go through the separation agreement and I want to highlight the operative terms. So, you know, the judge doesn't necessarily need you to go into the details as to what the parenting plan might be, but you'd want to share that the parties have joint legal custody and a shared physical uh, custody or shared parenting plan, um, or whatever the case may be that mom has primary physical custody or dad or whatever the case is. I'd like to flag um, how the assets are going to be divided. I'd like to flag um, who is covering who for purposes of health insurance, um, whether there are any um, life insurance provisions, what, um, whether there's any support considerations, but you want to really make sure to capture and put on the record these big ticket items as to, you know, the nuts and bolts of how the, the intact family, for lack of a better word, is now being divided and what the separation agreement um, generally is, is covering. It, it's always, I'm sorry, it, it's really your, um, I, I oftentimes will see uh, attorneys coming to court presenting an agreement um, and kind of flipping through the agreement as they go. Um, I really, I, I, as a practice point, I really like to, I still, after 18 years, write out all the key provisions because you've settled the case, you've done a great job for your client, finished looking strong, you know, present it like, you know, in a very clear and concise way. Um, it's a slam dunk and, and, you know, knowing your case and what you put in and it's also, well, I think the judges really appreciate it as well because you, you're coming prepared and you're looking professional. Um, there is a question up here about discretionary trusts. If, if that person, it's an anonymous attendee, if they want to email me um, directly, I can talk to them about that. Um, but again, that is, I've said before that that's a question for another CLE. That's a question for three CLEs. Yeah. Um, so a lot more there to unpack than we can address today. Final um, words, Pete? I'm just, when you get to that hearing, you're, you're there, you're just across the finish line. I agree with everything David said. I would also just do your homework on the judge. Some judges are, will, will see an attorney, two attorneys in the case and they'll say, okay, great to tell you about the agreement. And, and a lot of times we'll just approve it, but other judges will have some feedback. They might have some edits. If you do your homework ahead of time, find out what judge you may be assigned to. If you walk in a 1A, you won't know. But if you're, you're in a contested case, you'll know. And you can have a good idea about how that judge approaches agreements, whether they look with a very, very detailed, fine tooth comb, or whether they're just going to say, yep, I, I see this, it looked good to me, you're on your way. So just, I think that little extra homework would also be helpful. And to Peter's point, they might have questions. So you do want to, you know, take that step into your homework and review the agreement either the night before or the day, you know, morning of, or whatever the case may be, but just want to make sure that you know your case, you've you're at the finish line, like David said, and you want to be able to best answer the court's questions if any may come up. So um, I cannot tell people watching how awkward it is to talk to a screen like this. Um, we're looking at pictures of ourselves where we're, while we're talking, it's, it's hard to do. But if I'm being awkward, there's not two people in the world I'd rather be awkward with. So I thank both of them. And um, I hope this was helpful to everybody. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of everyone. If there's questions outside of what what we said today that you need help, just feel free to reach out to us. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Take Thank care. you, everybody.